Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we wanted to find out exactly what boards thought about culture and ethics compliance, and then give them a roadmap on how to activate themselves into the company. Traditionally, and we mentioned this in our first report, boards have had a more, you know, nose in, fingers out kind of attitude to companies. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm joined by Ty Francis. Ty is a longtime friend, but first time guest on the FCPA Compliance Report, and he's with LRN. And we take a deep dive into the recently re- released report, Assessing Corporate Culture, a Practical Guide to Improving Board Oversight, jointly uh, released by LRN and Tapestry. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with Ty Francis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you are in for a real treat today because we have one of the most ubiquitous, well-known people and certainly well-known voices in compliance. I am thrilled to have, for the first time on a podcast, Ty Francis. Ty, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom, and I'm sorry I haven't been on this podcast sooner. I've watched and heard all of them, but so I feel like I'm in a rarefied space now talking to you on this podcast, so thank you. You are a rarefied, in a rarefied space wherever you go because you're the only Welshman I know in compliance. You've been in compliance, I think, as long as I have. We have visited together, we have conferenced together, we've broken bread together, and now we're going to podcast together. It, the circle's complete, Tom. Ty, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what your current role is? So, yeah, so I currently I am the Chief Advisory Officer for LRN, and I head up LRN's Advisory Services Division. And what we do, in a nutshell, is we're the consultative arm of LRN, which actually provides ethics, compliance, uh, training, and education across the, uh, the globe. What we do is we help companies reevaluate their compliance programs. We right, and assess their ethical culture, their compliance programs themselves, like a, with, like with a 360 view on how they're doing. We help reinvent, uh, rewrite codes of conduct, and we also help simplify policies. We then provide an advisory service where we help boards of directors understand their ethics and compliance oversight. So we're not onboarding directors. We're not telling them how they should operate in an audit or a, a compensation committee. What we are telling them is how they can be better involved and articulate their company's ethics and compliance story. So prior to that, I was EVP at uh, Ethisphere, 
which is famous for the world's most ethical companies. So I headed up their global programs. So I took the compliance and governance roadshow across in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Japan, in Sao Paulo, London, Paris, and, and most of the US. Prior to that, I was a VP at the New York Stock Exchange, where I was the head of the corporate board member practice. And we provided governance, ethics, compliance, training, information, education to publicly traded companies. Originally from Wales, I'm a Welshman. I worked in London for a few years and then I moved over here in the mid 2000s and really came into the compliance world in about 2009 when I went to my first SCCE, met the uh, ubiquitous Roy Snell, and I've never looked back. And I think, I think you would have been one of the first people I met along with the likes of Jay Rosen and a few other people. So it's been a been a wild ride and it continues, which is fantastic. Ty, the reason we had the opportunity to get together today is a recently released report from LRN entitled Assessing Corporate Culture, a Practical Guide to Improving Board Oversight. Uh, I follow legal developments around compliance as well, and the Delaware Supreme Court over the past 18 months has significantly increased the responsibility of boards of directors around compliance and compliance oversight. And so now we have a legal requirement and you guys have really come in and taken the practical approach to help boards understand not what their role is, but how to com- fulfill that obligation. So I wanted to, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, <laughs> ask you, what was the genesis of this report? So this report is actually the second report that we've done in partnership with Tapestry. And the first one was the Activating Culture and Ethics in the boardroom. For a long time, coming from the governance background I had, I'd been talking to boards for over a decade. And the one thing they understood but weren't au fait with was culture. And when we joined with Tapestry, we wanted to kind of get to the crux of why boards aren't getting culture. When you look at any survey over the last 10 years, culture will be so high up on those lists. But then when you look further into the survey and ask them what they've done to kind of measure this culture, it's been pretty non-existent. So we wanted to find out exactly what boards thought about culture and ethics compliance, and then give them a roadmap on how to activate themselves into the company. Traditionally, and we mentioned this in our first report, boards have had a more, you know, nose in, fingers out kind of attitude to companies. They want to retain their independence, uh, but they don't want to become operational and lose that kind of independence. But I think with culture now, and especially what's happening with Delaware, it's been a journey that's come to fruition now. Boards are finding they have to put their fingers, their noses, their whole heads into the, to the business to figure out what culture is. So what we try to do and talk about it a little bit in more detail is talk to the board on not just what culture is, how it is, how it's been measured, but asking more questions. Boards should be asking more questions Anyway, you've seen the issues with Theranos where the board really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know where they were in the process. But with cult, this is something that can now make or break company. And it's not just a nice to have situation, Tom, anymore. It's a business imperative. In addition to the Delaware Supreme Court last October, Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, had remarks around how the DOJ views compliance, and she directly put culture in the forefront of what the DOJ was assessing. And I think they had probably done that informally for some time, but now we had on the record, you're going to be looked at regarding your culture up and down the organization. And that doesn't mean 
Ty or Tom going in and doing it. It means literally from the top of the organization. So that's another reason I found your report so prescient at this time. And there was a couple of things that struck me about your report, but perhaps the biggest one was this can really serve as a roadmap literally for a board to begin to think through that. And if you agree with that assessment, how do you see that? The first thing we try to do is find what an ethical culture was. I think that's the biggest stumbling block for a lot of boards, a lot of management teams. They don't know how to define their own cultures. The way we define it is it's an organization's core architecture. It's the codification of what an organization stands for and the systems that support those beliefs. And the core architecture should be reinforced and cascaded by that leadership in how they model through the words and actions and recognize and champion the values and the behaviors of their people. So figuring out what the what was, first of all, was the most important thing. And then secondly, then talking to them about what they should know and how they should know it. Simple things like who on your management team should you be talking to? What kind of questions should you be asking? Is this a traditionally a topic that comes into the audit committee, which has always been, and no disrespect to anyone on the audit committee, the kitchen drawer of, of a company where everything seems to be piled into. And what happens then, it gets overloaded and companies don't have enough time to talk about everything. And the issue before has been it's siloed. So you'd have a lot of HR culture surveys had been dumped into the nomination and governance committee or some in the compensation committee, some in the risk committees. Forward-thinking companies now have compliance committees and they allow and they have multiple stakeholders across the company to sit on there so people can hear As part of the discussions with this report, one of our directors who sits on a major public company said that she, by sitting on the audit committee, didn't really hear the voices of the other committees. So every now and then, they used to have a kind of uh, a cross-party kind of committee event where other members of committees would come onto these uh, general committees and talk about what's happening. And culture used to come to the top of that. And so there was an ability for them to talk about who owns this, what are we doing with it? And what do we think? We did a report, Tom, last year in late October. It was our ethical culture benchmarking report. We do one of these every two or three years, and it was across about 8,000 respondents. And what we found was there was, a, especially the pandemic brought this to life, there was what's called a pandemic, pandemic paradox. And what that did, it showed there was a disconnect between what a company says it values and the real-life experience of its employees. And though even though frontline workers were heralded publicly as heroes and keeping the, the economy running in the early times of COVID, they gave their firms the lowest scores across dimensions of culture. Um, this included people with job titles as office administrator, individual contributor, skilled manual, warehouse or factory worker. So what's happening is some leaderships are becoming disconnected to their companies. So that culture effort, although the CEO and the board say, yeah, we've got a great culture. We give people plenty of vacation time. We give them plenty of compensation. They're free to say whatever they want. That's not really the reality. So what we wanted to do was make sure that from the very top, from the board, that they understood the importance of having a good culture, but also the ramifications of missing some of those key points that may come up in a newspaper article or a whistleblower headline in years to come. Years and years ago, Tom, looking at balance sheets, intangible assets were maybe 10 or 15% of a company. Now there can be 50, 60, 70%. 
And the people who are involved in those companies are getting younger and they're becoming more aware and more cognizant of the transparency of the world and understanding that if my company doesn't match the values that I have, I'm going to go somewhere else. So I don't think companies can stand by the, listen, we're an oil and gas company. We get it. We're not saving the world. We won't have the best culture, but that's okay. That may not be okay anymore because those skilled engineers and those brilliant minds may want to go somewhere else that does value the company's values. Ty, I mentioned the legal requirements from the Delaware Supreme Court and the regulatory requirements as articulated by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. I probably should have added a business overlay and because you talked about the public perception and reputation really moving towards an ESG approach. And there's a G in ESG, and that's governance. And frankly, I can't think of a report that hits the G more directly than that. Would that be a fair assessment from your perspective? It's something, Tom, ESG, as Roy and I have talked about, and if you listen to Lisa Bethel and Tini Walker, ESG has been around for decades. It's just now packaged in a different version now. And the G is something that companies should be doing and should have been doing for years and years. And well, culture is really the epicenter of all of this. It shows the company's values and it shows the company's values across the board. And I think when you start to have a mismatch of what the company says it's doing, what they are really doing, that can fragment any ability for a company to demonstrate that it really is forward-thinking, sustainable, future-expanding company. This is the G. This is the board. This is governance. This is oversight. This is responsibility. This is what the board's there for. They're the steward. They're the stakeholder that manages the stakeholders. I'd like to turn now to what was identified as five key considerations in the report, and it started off with prioritizing culture on a board agenda. Do you just simply have to get in lecture to the board, or how does someone like yourself persuade a board that they must prioritize culture? Is it to bring in somebody like me and says, oh, you'll get sued, or oh, you'll get penalized? How do you make them understand the need to prioritize culture at their Other than showing them newspaper reports of companies that have nearly been destroyed by toxic cultures or people who dampen whistleblower hotline requests, ensuring that executives know that board members want to know about these issues is just, it's crucial. And it's not so much as you, Tom, or me, or anyone going into a board and giving them five basic things to think about. It's saying to the board, listen, you should be asking these questions. You need to request this information because this will give you the idea of where you should be. Now, traditionally, management teams and the market look at things in a myopic way. Boards should be looking things hyperopically. Now, they should be looking five years down the line. And making sure you've got a great culture and attached to a great strategy should be paramount. But you can't match those things together unless you know which one is functioning. So understanding what culture is the first point, but making sure the board understand why it's important is the second point. So prioritizing culture on the board agenda is crucial. And it shouldn't be just five minutes at the end where the chief compliance officer comes and talks, whether it's the chief compliance officer, whether it's the GC, whether it's the CEO. This should be on their agenda in advance. This isn't a, an AOB kind of, kind of part of their list. Ty, it strikes me that one of the requirements, one of the things that you have done literally over the years is help boards to understand not simply what their role is, but how to accomplish that role. Because I'm often asked, yes, Tom, we could see the Delaware Supreme Court. Yes, we can see the reputational damage. We can even hear Lisa Monaco, but we don't know how to do it. 
So a board is not charged with running a program. They're charged with oversight. So how do you help a board understand within the context of oversight, how to measure and monitor culture? We talk about this in the report as well. It's establishing data protocols. It's asking what data the board has got already. How are we measuring culture right now? Are we doing culture surveys? Are we doing focus groups? Are we asking people to join in roundtables? The other side, the more intangible part of the study, we're asking, are we doing exit interviews? Are there any kind of red flags coming out of those exit interviews? Are we promoting ratios? Are we, sorry, quotas? Are we looking at turnover rates, absentees? Are we looking at a hotline data rather than just numbers. Traditionally, if a board says that last year we had a thousand hotline reports, this year we got 500, that must be bad. Not necessarily, because it could be that 500 less people reporting because they're terrified to speak up. So there are a lot of things boards can look at now without bringing anyone in to do any of their kind of work for them. What we ask them to do is, and I'm not exactly sure whether this was, it's a true quote where, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'd, some people say that's the case. Some people say it's not. But I think if boards can establish a baseline of where they are and be honest with themselves to say, I don't think we really understand the culture of our company right now. We as a leadership team understand where we need to go. And our board certainly does. And our stakeholders do. But our employees, the people who keep this company alive, I don't think they actually agree with us. So measuring that kind of data is important. And then benchmarking it, taking it as a plot of time is hard because you can say, well, today we are at a 64 out of 100. Okay, that's fine. But if that point was 84 last year, then you're doing something terrible. If it was 34 last year, you're doing something great. But why are these measures? What are these markers? And why are these things changing? Before you even bring me in or you in, Tom, or any of the amazing consultants that we all know, is getting the board to understand where are we now. But data is so important right now, not just data from internally in the company, but data outside the company. What are our customers say? Are our employees talking about our company in a negative way? It hates some parts of their company. I'm very lucky. I love all parts of my company, but some people don't. But is that resonating with other people? Am I just the only one saying it? Are 20 other people saying it? Is there a pocket of employees of a certain background saying that? And I think boards need to be really careful about how they take that data and how they analyze it. I think long are the days where a board member can say, yes, I walked onto the factory floor two weeks ago. I spoke to five people and they say everything's great. Of course they are. I think making sure that the data is out there, even if you do a basic survey, communicate it well, make sure that there's input from all stakeholders, make sure there's sponsorship from leadership and the CEO. The CEO's voice should be all over that but also ensure that it's anonymous. Make sure the people answering those questions know that those questions are never gonna be linked back to them so they can feel free to answer honestly. Then the board may have a different opinion about where they think their culture is. Because as you said, from the DOJ, from Delaware, there will be a letter coming one day to say, we've had these 12 complaints. What did you know and what are you gonna do about it? Because after the fact, it's too late for a root cause analysis, especially with public opinion. Now, you said something a little bit earlier that I thought was incredibly prescient that I wanted to pick up on, which was siloed nature. I think there's a fair amount of conversation in the compliance community about the siloed nature of a corporation in terms of data, in terms of other things. But you talked about it in terms of the board, that you could have multiple board committees dealing essentially with a culture issue. So how do you help them understand first 
you have to de-silo culture at the board level. And then second, you have to go through the same exercise across the entire organization. Once again, not running culture, but doing it from an oversight perspective. I think it all starts with the culture of the board. Before, we, before you fix a problem, you have to know what the problem is. And a lot of boards haven't traditionally had that communication exercise. They're not talking to each other about their own culture and their own values. And I think that's important because before they start cascading the values of the company, they need to understand them themselves. Um, so that's always a big issue. Retrospectively looking at yourself and understanding how your leadership's culture is, do they allow their senior management to talk to them in adverse ways? Are they bringing up things that are uncomfortable? Because if they're not, if they're shutting down leadership, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to believe the board's going to be listening to anyone else if they're not listening to their own management teams. And the silo effect happens when you have, you have board rotation sometimes on different committees. And I spent a long time with my, my, my former colleague, TK Gerstetter, with audit boot camps and compensation committee boot camps and nomination government committee boot camps, understanding of what your role is. And some people like that gap. They don't have a finance background. So they're like, I'm okay with an Norman Gov committee. And that's where I'm going to stay. And the, some of the important stuff, especially with culture or the CECO, goes into the audit committee, and they never hear about that. Because when it get, comes to an all-over board meeting, some of that gets lost. Because then it's culture, it's fine. We think it's okay. We haven't had any serious issues so far. So understanding the board's own culture and making sure they're communicating. It's not a far stretch to do and make sure their board evaluations reflect how they feel they can speak up between themselves and especially new boards as well. Boards that are global, boards that have different think, most aligned sometimes because they have these different perspectives coming from their different areas of expertise. But the silo effect can be damaging because you're losing information. You've been working around Seacoast for long enough, Tom, to understand that the Seacoast voice is normally the last one to be heard because it's HR, then it's finance, then it's legal, and compliance seems to be the gatekeeper down here that no one's listening to. The more compliance is speaking to HR and people in operations and culture and finance, the more they're going to align all these things together. Because I would doubt that most compliance officers get invited to step into the HR culture surveys, which is a shame because sometimes the HR surveys only portray vacation time, salary, jobs. They don't ask for the organizational justice questions. Can you speak up? Do you think your company's ethical? Do you think your management are ethical? Do you think people are treated fairly? Those questions seldom get asked unless people collaborate. So it's a three-rung kind of event where C-suite need to collaborate together to then bring that to the CEO to make sure the CEO goes to the board and says to the board, this is important. We need to have this continually on our agenda and not just quarterly. This is something I need to update you with monthly. And we need to do some kind of all-company culture survey. And there is survey fatigue. I get that, Tom. But honestly, I think the survey fatigue is because people and employees don't believe that anything's going to come of their input. If you communicate to the company that this is crucial, that the CEO is on board, the board is on board, that the answer to this will be transparent. We've just done one at LRN. We did our own, we ate our own cooking. We did our own, what we call an ECPA, which is an ethical and cultural program assessment, where we then presented the results to the entire company. And it wasn't, it was pretty good. 
I've got to admit, it was very good considering the pandemic in the last couple of years, but there are things we need to improve on. And we are communicating that through what we call an operational leadership team, which is a second rung of leadership that goes into the company and cascades that, much like a compliance or ambassador program. But that's what needs to happen in a lot of companies. There needs to be that trust, not just from the board to the leadership team, but throughout the whole company. Ty, we both observed this evolution in thinking around culture, and now we finally got, I think, some pretty clear legal and regulatory requirements and, frankly, public pressure requirements for the board to, to really stay, step up and take a much more active oversight role. Do you see that continuing into 2025 and beyond as well? I do. I think that the stakeholder pressure is going to be pretty unbearable for some companies who aren't learning to surf on this these waves. There's a huge resignation issue right now. And I don't really think it's just because of the pandemic. I think companies are losing employees because the employees are turning around and understanding that they're not aligned. Their values aren't aligned with their companies and they're going to places that are. And with the ability for people to get a job online now and have Zoom interviews and they can do 10 or 15 Zoom interviews and that's the standard now. Companies are really having an issue holding on to their employees, which, as we know, are the most precious assets a company can have. And that's what I think the companies are starting to step on. As we've been doing these interviews with these directors, the Tapestry Group is an amazing group of people. It's the, uh, we call it the ECCCN, um, where we have not just directors of public companies, but we have com- chief compliance officers. And then we have a third group, which, is, uh, which are directors that, who were chief compliance officers. So they really have an insight to how the compliance function works, how ethics works, and how culture really should be determined and measured. And throughout this last, I would say, year and a half, you've seen the shift in some of these directors and their thinking on what culture really means to them. But not just what it means to them, but how they can start articulating it to their company. And they want to be involved. They're starting to really want to be involved. They're asking more and more questions. They're not just allowing the CEO to give them a list of things and say, yeah, that looks good. Then I actually, I'd like to dig deeper on that. Can we set aside 30 minutes or an hour in our next meeting to really dig into that? And that's a forward thinking board. And that's what's going to happen. And as you start to have more board turnover and tenure becomes a little bit more uh, circumspect and those letters from Larry Fink keep landing on CEO's desks asking to determine what your purpose is, that's where you're going to find this shift. It's funny, we had a bit of a a LinkedIn comment marathon over the weekend, and Adam Balfour had talked about this, should the CECO report into the GC or vice versa, or how that's working. But one comment he did make was that this shift in how CECOs are being represented on the leadership teams and the seat at the table is going to be crucially important. Ty, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on LRN, or this report, what would be the best way for them to do so or find out? The first point of call would be LRN.com. You'll find all the information you need need there. If you want to find out more about the Tapestry Partnership, if you just go to our LRN.com page, if you click on advisory, you'll see all the information of how we conduct culture surveys. And then you can find us on LinkedIn at LRN, Twitter LRN. Personally, I'm at Ty Francis on Twitter, and I'm fairly active on there. You may see 
some Welsh rugby. You may see some female and disability sport advocacy on there as well, but it's mostly ethics compliance, but that's where you can find it. Ty, I hope that we don't have to wait as long for our next podcast. This has been a ton of fun, and I look forward to continuing this conversation with you and your LRN colleagues. Well, thank you, Tom, and thanks for finally getting around to asking me on. It's been a pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'd like to tell you about a great new podcast series on the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DiBernardis, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in this modern era of FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement. I know you'll enjoy this series, and I hope you'll check it out. The Corruption Files on the Compliance Podcast Network, Megaphone, iTunes, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.